51 and a half. You are listening to Area 51 and a half live from London Comic Con. We discuss science fiction, fantasy, horror, and all things pop culture. This air podcast of Area 51 and a half is sponsored in part by Denny's Restaurant in St. Thomas, located at the Elgin Center, 417 Wellington Street, where you can get a breakfast from Monday to Friday for $7.99. Mention Area 51 and a half and you get 10% off your purchase. Also sponsored by The Long Box, selling comics, collectibles, and unique snacks, 471 Talbot Street in St. Thomas, Black Comb Barbershops, and Shave Parlors, respecting the heritage of vintage barbering, with two locations to serve you, 36 Talbot Street in Blenheim and 133 Ross Street, St. Thomas. Stay True Tattoo, 817 Talbot Street, St. Thomas, a friendly custom tattoo shop. Check them out on Facebook and Instagram or call them at 519-631-311 for bookings and inquiries and by Lockwood Books, 488 Talbot Street, St. Thomas. Come by and see Vanessa Fletch and Duck the Cat for your love of old books. Like I said, you are listening to Area 51 and a Half Podcast, live from London Comic Con. I am your host, John Allen, also known as Spooky Uncle John. And with me, as always, is my co-host and tech director, Snyderman501, Nick Snyder. Nick, remind our aliens how they can get a hold of us. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, at the Area 51H, and on Facebook by searching for Area 51 and a Half. Speaking of aliens, a special shout out to our very first alien and fan of Area 51 one and a half don now if you would like to join don in becoming an official alien please drop by our table and spend a little time with us where you get a chance to win prizes donated by our sponsors when you sign up with your email and don't forget to enter one of our raffles to win cool swag from one of our generous sponsors nick that is the longest pre-intro we have ever had before getting yep. into the meat of the show <laughs> now listen Listen, folks, unless you've been living under a rock, you all know that Queen Elizabeth II, the longest reigning British monarch, has passed away. This is sad news for us. A little bit of feedback there. Um, She is more than just a monarch. She became a pop culture icon, skydiving with a skydiving skit at the Olympics with James Bond, tea with Paddington Bear, spoofed in movies and comedies, and, of course, partially the subject of the King's Speech and the subject of the Queen starring Helen Mirren, for which she won an Oscar playing Queen Elizabeth. But now it is time for Nick's Pop Culture Roundup. That's right. Now, this past weekend, or the weekend before this weekend, was Disney's D23 Expo. We got to see some really cool stuff come out of the Expo. We got to see our first look at Little Mermaid. And to add to that, Iman Esfandi has been cast as fan favorite character Ezra Bridger for the uh, the Ahsoka television series. Now, on top of that, more coming out of D23, the makers of Uncharted are making a yet unnamed Captain America Black Panther crossover game that takes place during World War II, and I'm living for that. And there's also a Neutron game. Uh, Moving away from Disney... We have a remake of the 2009 kind of slasher film Strangers coming out. And then to cap that all off, one of our favorite pop culture icons here at Area 51 and a half, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, will be alongside the Boulay brothers as a guest judge on the next season 
of Dragula Titans Drag Contest Series. That will probably broadcast on Shutter. That's where I watch Boulay Brothers Dragula. Mm-hmm. That is a great show. If you haven't seen it, the the makeup artists that join that show are phenomenal. Right? Like you, I, I haven't seen makeup like that in such a short period of time. Um, speaking of Elvira and Cassandra Peterson, we are about a week away from the new debut of Rob Zombie's The Monsters. We've been talking that, about that on our podcast for a while, Nick. It's going to be on Netflix and Blu-ray release next Friday going head-to-head like it's 1964 with the newest iteration of the Adams Family, Tim Burton's Wednesday. Yeah, I'm so excited for that. It looks so good. Both of them look enjoyable, really good. Now, Nick, you've got uh, a few shout-outs that you need to do. Yeah, I do. So we have some, we have some very fine sponsors. Some people came ahead and, and uh, donated to the show to make this possible for us here at London Comic-Con. So I'm going to give a shout-out to our sponsors, our executive producers as well. We have Alex Camps. We have Julia Letts Camps. We have Spencer McKee. We have Jeff Annandale, Alexis Muradumbe, Christina Weikenthak. We have Fan of the Sport who's here at the con. Nicole Holmes, Tracy Curlew, Sarah McNeil, Mel Suchek, and Snack City located in St. Thomas. <laughs> and again, you're listening to Area 51 and a Half live at London Comic Con. Nick, it's, it's been a fun time so far. I mean, look at the celebrities that are here. We have Kari Payton from Walking Dead, Billy Zane from Titanic and The Phantom, Dana DiLorenzo and Ray Santiago from Ash vs. Evil Dead, Lisa Zane from Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, Dakota Beavers and Dane DeLegro from Prey, Robert Picardo from Star Trek Voyager, the voices of Sailor Moon and Sailor Mars, Linda Ballantyne and Katie Griffith, just to name a few. And John, we have three superstars from All Elite Wrestling. We have Athena, Miro, and the Swiss Superman, Claudio Castagnoli. Nick, where did all these Comic-Cons begin from? Well, that's it's kind of a mushy history, but as far as I can tell, the first officially recorded Comic-Con was in New York in the 60s, and it was put together by a 16-year-old boy named Bernie Bubness. Bernie Bubness. Yep. That has got to be the most appropriate name for anybody starting a Comic-Con ever. Yeah. And Comic-Cons kind of gained traction through the 70s and 80s with different types of cons, including like Star Trek cons, right? And that all led up to the first San Diego Comic-Con in March 1970 at the U.S. Grant Hotel, which I used to book rooms for at my former job. Oh, really? And when you, when you were booking the rooms, did was there anything, like, did you book any for Comic-Cons? Yeah, actually, I did. There was one time I had a customer call in, a guest call in, and he owns a promo company. Now, one of his big clients was Marvel. So, for example, the big Marvel throne room that they made at San Diego Comic-Con for Thor, his company made that. So, it was really cool for me to talk to him. But Marvel had kind of ticked him off. They booked him at the wrong hotel. He wanted to be at the Westin Gas Lamp downtown. And he needed 10 rooms for his guys, for his his, uh, company, right? So... I called the hotel and I knew this was a hard task because this is a week out from Comic-Con and he wants 10 rooms. That is difficult. But I talked to the hotel. I talked to the manager. I let them know who was coming in, the importance of who was coming in. And uh, we may have had some people that booked through Expedia kicked out for them. 
How did that go? Um, I didn't have to deal with the Expedia people, so it went great for me. <laughs> Mike, the, the, the guy from uh, from Promo Guys, was very happy, and yeah. Now, Nick, we, you and I have attended Comic-Cons. This is our first time on the other side of the table. What are some of the experiences and memories that you've had? Well, one of my favorite things, and probably most people's favorite things, is meeting the celebrities. No surprise to you, but I love wrestling, and meeting Sergeant Slaughter was one of my favorite con moments. He was just such a sweet guy. He took off his Hall of Fame ring to show me. He talked to me for 10 minutes and was just pleased to talk to me. Now, you've been to more Comic-Cons than me. Right. What experiences pop out for you? Um, well, you, earlier you mentioned Elvira. Yeah. Funny story about that. This is a family show, so I will completely clean it up. Kids are here. Joke will be way up here. <laughs> when I met her, I was really... She's a very sweet lady. First yeah. of all, Cassandra Peterson is a sweetheart. If you ever get a chance to meet her, certainly do it. I told her how much she meant to me growing up. Mm -hmm. What I meant by that was the fact that, like a lot of people, I was kind of on the outside. I wasn't a jock. I wasn't a brainiac. I was just, you know, this kid that was awkward and liked horror movies. And she gave me a safe place with her movie Macabre to go. She was funny. She was pretty. She was all kinds of wonderful things that you could gravitate towards and she made it okay to be an outsider. She made it okay to be awkward. She made it okay to, to just sit there and have fun and love these things. So I told her, I said, you meant so much to me growing up because she started when I was a teenager, mm -hmm. but she has a lot of men that come up and tell her that they meant a lot to her. And she thought I meant, and this is what I mean by cleaning it up. She thought I meant that she helped me get through some special adolescent male exuberance via her vivacious visage Verily. as Elvira. Verily. To which I reassured her, no, that was not the fact that it was more the things that I had said, just how much I loved her and appreciated her watching her show. Just, it's a safe place to watch monster movies. And 40 years in the business, she has transcended all other horror hosts, um, survived, uh, survived basically um, accusations of stealing Vampire's look, Vampire's shtick. And if you get a chance to read uh, Cruelly Yours by Cassandra Peterson, Elvira's uh, autobiography, it's a great, wonderful read. And another um, experience that you had was actually here at London Comic-Con, right? Yes. Uh, Nick, you want to set the stage for that? So for John's 50th birthday, uh, a, group of, a group of friends and myself got together and we put together uh, money to get John the special VIP package for Tim Curry. Yeah. Dr. Frankenfurter from Rocky Horror Picture Show. How cool is that? It was pretty cool. Yeah, and you know, he is a really sweet gentleman. Um, just was so open to meeting all the fans and and signing autographs that you could get a little bit later on. It, it, it was just a wonderful experience here at London Comic Con. And just a reminder, folks, that you are listening to Area 51 and a half live at London Comic Con. 
Speaking of heroes and comics, today, Nick, it's a special day. Um, you know that we're not talking about my guy. I love Superman, but we are talking about your guy. What is today's special day besides the first day of London Comic-Con? Today is Batman Day. Batman Day. Who does not love the Dark Knight? I don't know. <laughs> so that's the thing. You mentioned superhero. Uh, Superman is your hero. Um, but I have a massive lifelong love for Batman. Yes. Now, just to go over Batman very briefly, he was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger, uh, debuted in Detective Comics in March of 1939, and has become one of the biggest icons in pop culture history, leading to cartoon, television, film, and multiple spoofs, even a Scooby-Doo crossover. <laughs> Who hasn't had a Scooby-Doo crossover at this point? Well, that, that's how you know you've made it, if you get a Scooby-Doo crossover. Well, yeah, just ask the guys from Supernatural. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite line from that is, <laughs> is Fred Zawad. Oh, I know. That, that, that entire episode killed me. It was absolutely brilliant. The way they did it, the way they, they went through the TV, it was just absolutely yeah. wonderful. Now, what is it about Batman that you particularly love? I I kind of drift towards more towards anti-heroes and Batman has always just been kind of an anti-hero even even when he was kind of silly he still kind of had that visage about him um and let's face it the dude dresses as a giant bat he just looks cool well yeah but I mean there's a there's a whole lore behind why he dresses yeah. as a giant bat and that's you know Bruce the very first issue of detective comics that he appeared in Bruce Wayne trains himself to be this a uh, strong individual that can fight crime. He trains himself in, in different forms of defense and attack and all that kind of stuff. And he sits there brooding, trying to figure out what he can disguise himself as in order to strike fear into the hearts of criminals who are a cowardly lot. Yeah. And then in flies this giant bat and it's, it hits him like a bolt of lightning. Well, no, that's the thing is, like, as he says, they are a supersti superstitious and cowardly lot, and he uses that to his advantage. Even um, in year one, even when he goes out for the first time, he, he uses makeup to change up his look, knowing full well how to use dramatics and whatnot. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's really fascinating, this type of character where he comes out of tragedy. I know a lot of characters do. Spider-Man, as an example, the loss of Uncle Ben. Yeah. But, but Spider-Man gets bit by that radioactive spider. He gets these multiple superpowers. Bruce Wayne and the Batman have no superpowers. No, they don't. It's and all it, based on his strength alone. And despite the fact that Bruce Wayne is a, is a billionaire, I do think that he is a little bit more relatable because sometimes you do, you do think about what's going on and you want to help out, and he has the means and the ability to help out. Yeah, but it's, it's interesting because his catalyst into it was the trauma of his parents being murdered in front of him. Yep. Yep. Um, now, let's talk a little bit about the actors that have played Batman. Okay. Um, growing up, you were obviously very well versed in the Adam West Batman. Yes, thank you for reminding everybody that I'm old. You're very welcome. That's uh, what kind of what makes the podcast unique. I'm Gen X and you are a millennial. Now, who is your favorite Batman? Uh, okay, so that's like asking who my favorite child would be because there have been so many great performances as Batman. All of the actors that bring 
that, that have been there, you know, from Adam West right down to Robert Pattinson, our latest one in the Batman, mm -hmm. have actually been very good for what the movie or program is that they're in. Yeah, that, that's kind of the thing with the different actors that play Batman. They, they, they have their own taste, their own look, their own idea behind the character. All the characters have brought something positive to the role, I think. Even George Clooney, like, he was actually a really, really good Bruce Wayne in my eyes. He was a good Bruce Wayne. It's too bad that his bat suit had bat nipples on it. Yep. I blame the director for that one, though. Oh, I 100% blame the director for that. But if I had to go ahead, gun to my head, and choose, I would say Michael Keaton. I Everybody loves Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton's Batman is probably... He was the first one to really play that serious Dark Knight in a film. Well, that, that's the whole thing, because Tim Burton, when he did that film, he wanted to get to that Dark Knight area, but yeah. I mean, being like 1989, he still had certain amount of limitations, right? Mm -hmm. Well, and that, that's, that's the thing, is like it was coming off of a very campy time in Batman history. You had, uh, you had well, with comic books at the time, a lot of them weren't very adult-oriented. Marvel had done a lot of adult-oriented stuff, but DC wasn't really doing that. Yeah, so kind of Frank Miller to kind of bring that dark night darkness into it. Yeah, and even then, a lot of people were still very apprehensive about it because they wanted that darker character, and they had chosen the guy that played Beetlejuice. They had chosen what people had perceived as a comedian, and there was a huge writing campaign complaining about Michael Keaton's casting. There were a lot of people who were very upset, and yeah. Well, yeah. if you think about it, I mean, up until that point, Michael Keaton had done things like Mr. Mom, Beetlejuice, yep. uh, Gung-Ho, all these sort of comedic takes. So yeah, it didn't seem like a good fit. Now, looking back at it, can you imagine anybody else? Well, one of the other actors that was actually up for the role, I could not imagine playing him, and that was Bill Murray. Bill Murray was up for Yeah, that? Bill Murray was up for the role of Batman before Michael Keaton got it. I can't remember why. I can't remember exactly what happened for him to drop out, but thankfully he did. I'm just glad that Tim Burton said, no, no, I've worked with Michael before. <laughs> let's, let's work with him. But, you know, if you think about it, Michael Keaton is actually that perfect foil to Jack Nicholson as the Joker. Oh, I agree. And he fits very nicely with Kim Basinger's Vicky Vale. I agree with that as well. Leaving the comedy to Robert Wall in this character, which, I, is that character even in the comics? The Robert um, Wall character? Knox? I don't think he is. They're, they're, that's, that's the thing about a lot of the comic book movies, specifically Tim Burton comic books, is he has introduced characters that were not in the comics in his movies, right? Right. Uh, like Knox in the first Batman movie, um, Matt Shrek in Batman Returns, and he gives them these very prolific, very interesting roles. He kind of makes it his own thing. And there's a Batman there. Speaking of Batman, there he goes. <laughs> <laughs> Off to fight crime and, and look for a, a new Robin, I guess. Indeed. Now, well, actually, that's really interesting, too, though. It's, speaking of Robin, I mean... Here is one of the first superheroes, like, of course, Captain America had Bucky, but Robin is the quintessential sidekick, clearly invented to draw little boys, particularly at that time, into the comics. Yeah, and Robin was, he, Robin was intended, when he was first shown in print, he was intended to make a splash. Even his first issue has him 
jumping through this. Uh, I, I I don't know what you call it. It's a big round thing, and it's a it's made of paper, and you jump through it. Oh, I know what you mean. Yeah, the, one of those the things. Circus. Yeah, yeah, it's from the circus. Like he was intended to make a splash, and obviously he he did because much like a lot of Batman's villains, Robin has endured as a character through several different iterations of the character. You have uh, Dick Grayson, you have Jason Todd, Tim Drake, Damian Wayne, um, even uh, Carrie from The Dark Knight Returns is a Robin at one point. So the character has endured so well over the years. And it's not just the, the Dick Grayson Robin. Like Dick Grayson has gone on to become Nightwing. Jason Todd has gone on to become Red Hood. Tim Drake has gone on to be become Red Robin. These characters have gone on to have a full-on publication history and life for themselves. Right. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting, too, because he's Robin is born out of that same kind of tragedy that Batman's born out of. Yeah. You know, watching his parents die in front of his whole family, really, the Flying Graces. Yeah, in the comic books, it is it's, it's exactly the same type of thing. It's crime. It is, um, it's not like in Batman Forever, where it's Two-Face that kills him. It is mafia-level crime that gets them killed. Right. And that is something for, I find, why Batman kind of latches, or why Bruce Wayne latches on to Dick Grayson, because... They share the same pain. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's really interesting. Too. Let's go back to the different iterations yeah. that we're really familiar with. Let's go back to the 1960s with Adam West and Batman. Right. If you really think about it, this is one of the first shows that actually, I mean, everybody in Hollywood had all kinds of big names guest starring as the villain. Cesar Romero as the Joker. Yep. Burgess Meredith as the Penguin. Frank Gorshin, John Astin at one point, who played Gomez Adams. As the Riddler, yeah. Uh, and, but female actresses, too. I mean, Julie Newmar. Julie Newmar, Eartha Kitt. as Catwoman. Tallulah Bankhead, of all people. I mm -hmm. know that's probably a name that is completely out of the zeitgeist of our audience today. But at the day, she was a huge star. John Collins was in it as well. Yeah, I mean, just... And sometimes they would invent these characters. I mean, Vincent Price's Egghead. Yeah, Vincent Price's Egghead. Um, there was also False Face, who was kind of a stand-in for Two-Face. Right. Um, although there was intention to bring Two-Face into it. Yeah. And they had approached Clint Eastwood for playing Two-Face. That would have been interesting. He said no, so they dropped it. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting because that, that 1960s Batman is one of the first things that I remember where I think it was probably the third season, later on in the season, they introduced Yvonne Craig as Batgirl. Yeah. So this now allows young girls to come in and see this wonderful heroine that is sometimes the catalyst for saving the boys. Yeah, and that is kind of the thing. The way they... And we can't say here that that TV show was brilliant writing. It was very, very formulaic, but the formula worked. And when they introduced Batgirl, they changed the formula so that she would kind of pop in at the end and save Batman and Robin from whatever danger they had gotten themselves into. Yeah, and that, I think that's what makes it such a tragedy that all of the shuffling up that's gone on at Warner Brothers right now, the, uh, the Batgirl film is technically indefinitely shelved and canceled. Yeah, they've canceled it, yeah. Um, and that seems to be happening with a lot of other films, but we can talk about that another time. Yeah, it's, it's such a shame, though. Now, we, ha we have talked about that. We, we, Michael Keaton and Tim Burton, I mean, wow, that was such a fantastic movie. Huge hit for 1989. 
Things got a little campier as things went on, particularly with Joel Schumacher. Yep. I think the less said about those Batman, the better. Some people might like him. Don't come for us. Just our opinion, our podcast, our opinion. Yep. Uh, but I will say, though, that Uma Thurman as Poison Ivy was very delicious in Batman and Robin. Yeah, she was really good. In, I, okay. Yeah. Hey, what? there you go. <laughs> perfect timing. For that movie, Uma Thurman was absolutely perfect. Um, I, I I liked Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze. I did. It was He had a lot of fun doing that, and you could tell. Yes. Just, just for the fact he was having fun doing it, I liked it. At the time, yes. Uh, but it, the campiness, and he brought that campiness. But, I mean, could you imagine somebody like, say, Patrick Stewart playing Victor Freeze? Yeah, I can, and that would have been perfect. Yeah. So, I mean, I really think Uma Thurman as Poison Ivy saved that movie. I agree with you. And it made it worth I watching. I agree with you. I mean, the movie had a a Batman, a Bat credit card. He had a credit card in his wallet. Like, <laughs> don't leave home without and it. Do you remember some of the camping commercials that went along with that? Because McDonald's had a tie-in. So there's there's uh, Michael Goff as Alfred talking to right. Batman on the phone saying, oh, pick up some dinner or whatever. I'm going to go through drive through and the Batmobile goes through McDonald's and gets a quarter pounder or whatever he happens to get. Yep. I don't know um, what Batman eats when he's, you know, slumming it. And and one of the things that really mired those movies down were toy sales because Warner Brothers wanted to use those movies to sell toys. Like that's why you have them in different outfits at the end of Batman and Robin. Yeah, they had to have very specific looks. I remember that McDonald's was one of the big ones and they were not happy with the way that uh, Danny DeVito's Iteration of the Penguin looked. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, he was scary. He was not. It was not a kid-friendly character, and the Batman, those Batman movies, were perceived as kid-friendly. Now, I would love to see them do Batman Beyond with Michael Keaton as an older Bruce Wayne. I would literally die if they did that. That would be <laughs> fantastic. Now, you had mentioned George Clooney before, and you said that he was a little embarrassed about Batman. And Robin. Yeah, so allegedly, if you approach George Clooney, if you're lucky enough to approach George Clooney and tell him that you did not like Batman and Robin, he will give you $10 out of his wallet to refund the ticket. I'm surprised he's not bankrupt. I know. <laughs> That's a lot of $10. That but is, yeah. that is. I mean, th th those movies go worldwide. Now, Nick, we've been talking about um, Batman, of course. Right. But any hero is no good without a villain. That is 100% true. And, of course, the big villain for Batman is the, the Joker. Joker. So who is your favorite Joker? My favorite Joker? Oh, geez. Um, it's a hard one. It's a hard one to choose. Just because all of them have been, all of them have brought something different to the table, and most of them have been absolutely brilliant. Whether you look at Heath Ledger, Jack Nicholson, even Mark Hamill in his voice role of the Joker, it's hard to choose. But, and this is kind of the litmus test for me. Right. When I'm when I choose my favorite uh, actor that plays a comic book character, it's their voice I hear when I'm reading a comic book. Okay. And it's. Yeah always Mark Hamill I hear when I'm reading The Joker. So your, your favorite Joker is It is Mark Hamill. Yeah, it is Mark Hamill. It would be a tough one for me to pick too because Nicholson was so great, you know. Cesar Romero was great. 
Nicholson was iconic. Yeah. And see, so was Cesar Romero. Well, they've all been kind of iconic. I mean, if you think about it, Heath Ledger won an, a posthumous Oscar. Yeah, he did. And Joaquin Phoenix, like everybody was against that movie when that was coming out, solely based on the Joker. But what a fantastic movie that turned out to be. Yep. And again, here's an Oscar for you, Joaquin. Uh, he absolutely killed it in that movie. It was a very different take on the Joker. Yes, obviously. But absolutely brilliant, kind of mashing up comic books with uh, Taxi Driver. Yeah, absolutely. The the Fred Rickle character in that, and you know, it's it's really interesting watching him unfold all of the layers of that mania that the Joker is supposed to have, and he, it's coming down from his mother and sort of an understated performance by yep. Francis Conroy as his mother, saying, "Oh no, like you're you're Bruce Wayne's son," and him sort of believing that. And it's, it, or not Bruce Wayne, uh, Thomas Wayne, Thomas Wayne, and showing that that Thomas Wayne isn't maybe this wonderful guy that we all kind of have been led to believe that yeah. he is. Yeah, you know. So, yeah, for me, definitely Mark Hamill. How about you? Um. Oh gosh! Again, like, why did you ask me to pick my favorite child? Because uh, I like torturing you. Uh, you know what? I'm just I'm gonna go with Nicholson because I'm that old, <laughs> and I, I just loved what Jack Nicholson did. It is. He a- had so many great lines, like "Never rub another man's rhubarb." Where does he get those wonderful toys? It was just uh, it was a stellar performance. I'm kind of surprised he wasn't nominated for an Oscar as well. I agree with that. He should have been nominated for an Oscar, as far as I'm concerned. But one of my favorite <clears throat> one of my favorite scenes is when he's using that hand buzzer thing in the guy oh, yeah it's a hot time in the, the old, old town tonight right. that scene is burned in my brain forever yes, it is it's, burned, it's burned in the gangster's brain too fair enough <laughs> it's burned in his whole body in that one now nick this one's been going around the internet if they were to make a new batman movie today now they did it with robert pattison so it's a much younger cast yep um but if they were to do like a straight up sort of comic iteration of batman right now internet is crazy for it they're jonesing for it i think this actor would do it it's the man that we speak of in hushed tones i think willem dafoe would knock that out of the park i think from an acting standpoint and from a physical standpoint willem dafoe would be the perfect joker he's got the look and he can twist and contort contort his uh his face in such a way that it looks makes him look frightening he's kind of to me he's kind of the antithesis or the mirror version of jim carrey he has that rubber face but he can use it for evil yeah like if you you see that grimace that he can do i'm not even sure what the movie is from but you see it in in gifts and everything else and you go that is terrifying it is and yet i think he's like one of the sweetest guys that you could possibly meet i haven't met him a friend of ours has, she put it out on Facebook last night when we were talking about this, that she was in Switzerland of all places. Like, first of all, girl, you're in Switzerland to begin with. Like, what the heck? She went somewhere. I can't remember where she said she went. Wasn't planning on going there. Just was kind of sneaking in, looking around. Who does she run into? Willem Dafoe. That is kind of insane. Like, imagine just running into Willem Dafoe. Right. And I said to her, you know, congratulations. What an awesome 
experience and memory that is. I'm so happy that you had that. Also, I hate your face, and I'm engorged with jealousy. Yeah, I, I would be too. I am. I am. And I'm, <laughs> I'm going to have to message her and be like, I hate you. But let's talk a little bit more about Willem Dafoe for a second okay. and, and why he would make a good Joker. Well, first of all, you've got Shadow of the Vampire, where he played Max Schreck. Yeah. The, uh, Nosferatu. Now, mind you, that is a take on it. The whole lore behind that is that Max Schreck would show up in the makeup. He would stay away from the cast and the crew. He threw himself into the point that back in the 1920s, people were starting to actually believe that Max Schreck was a full-fledged vampire. Well, he he methodized it pretty well, and he looks like a scary guy. And he would, I believe, he did his own makeup. Yeah, and he did it in such a way that no one else really saw him outside of the makeup. Yeah, so now you've got Willem Dafoe to do this movie, Shadow of the Vampire, completely based on that lore about them making Nosferatu, which, mm-hmm. speaking of which, they are going to be doing a remake of Nosferatu, yes. starring Willem Dafoe, yep. <laughs> again, and, as, and, and as, Anya Taylor-Joy, as, as that character, as the Nosferatu, as Count Orlock. Perfect I'm looking choice. forward to and that. It's a, it's a nice bookend between Shadow of the Vampire and Nosferatu. I agree. Now, another role that would really inform his playing the Joker, and of course this is all speculation, just to remind our audience, but one role that would really inform his ability to play the Joker would be his time as the Green Goblin. Yes. He, he was, as the Green Goblin, he was actually very frightening. Right. But not to a point where it would scare the kids away, you know? No, but, but- he... What a great treat that was to see them bringing in to No Way Home. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and the way he plays him in No Way Home, he's completely vulnerable at the start of the film. Right. And because he doesn't realize what's going on. And it, you're, we know the history of the character, but the vulnerability kind of breaks those walls down. And you're kind of sitting there on the edge of your seat going, is he okay? Is he good? Well, no, he's not, but yeah, absolutely brilliant. And really, that was a fascinating narrative where you see Peter Parker try uh, another Peter Parker in the multiverse trying to help these villains, you know, trying to get them back to where they came from, back to their birth and their Peter Parkers. And then seeing, yep. of course, the, the trio of Peter Parkers and Spider Man coming in to, to assist. Yeah. Um, but I, would, I, I really I haven't seen Willem Dafoe do anything bad. Uh, nope, nope. I have not either. He is he's not just a great actor. He's really good at choosing projects. Uh, even the really artsy projects that he does tend to be very very good. Like some actors will choose an artsy pro, uh, project, and sometimes it does not work out for them, but I can't think of one where it didn't work out for Willem Dafoe. Well, you know, it, it is their job, right? That's why they get paid. Yeah. Um, so Batman has had a lot of inspiration from graphic novels. Yes. Especially the Robert Pattinson one. I mean, that was inspired by The Long Halloween. What's your favorite Batman story? Um, honestly, The Long Halloween is up there. I love The Long Halloween. I It's the Batman story I've read the most. Right. It's really neat because it brings together so many different villains into one story. Another really good story that's similar to that is Hush. Right. Um, where we see a new villain called Hush introduced 
and he kind of um, is the architecture architect of pulling all these villains together just to screw with Batman. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant story. I love it. And it's not just about the villains either. I mean, Robin has a part in it. Catwoman has a part. Superman has a part. And it's written so well and so wonderfully that they, it just, it's just a great book. Yeah. And do you have a favorite artist from the comics? Oh, geez. Um, I mean, I can tell you my favorite writer, and to this day, that's Alan Moore, but for favorite artist, oh, man, Frank, uh, Frank, uh, Miller? Frank Miller, thank you, because nothing, nothing beats that artwork in year one. It's absolutely brilliant. There are a few one-offs that, are, that stand out, but for just the straight-up show, the, 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 the ongoing publication, right. Frank Miller. Now, just a reminder, folks, you are listening to Area 51 and a Half live from the London Comic-Con in London, Ontario. Nick, we've been talking about Batman, and of course, Batman comes from, when we see the movies, we see the television series. Batman comes from other works. He comes from comic books. He comes from graphic novels. Yep. A lot of what informs our pop culture does come from novels. Yeah, a lot does. I mean, and Harry Potter, Stephen King... I mean, try and find a, a mainstream film that isn't based off of something else. And most of them are based off of books. Like, for example, the upcoming uh, Salem's Lot movie. Right. Now... Oh, and the upcoming interview with the vampire. Yeah. Based on the yeah. Anne Rice's most famous novel. Oh, I'm so excited for that. And, of course, uh, the, the redo of Hellraiser, which is based on the, the Hellbound Heart. You know, that's really interesting what they're doing there. I, I read one thing online where because... Um, the, the pinhead is being played by a female actress. Yeah. And people were not having it. They were just having this whatever epiphany they wanted to have about it. They were just against it. And then my favorite comment was, dude, pick up a book once in a while. Yeah. Cause because in the book, pinhead has this visage of being female. Yes. Yeah. Um, Which makes sense because the character that they're trying to entice is a straight male. Mm-hmm. And I, I love Clive Barker's work. He's he's so he's so dirty, and he's so <laughs> descriptive in the filth. And I shouldn't say filth; it's not it's not smut, right? But it's it's informed from a very dark place. No, but uh, we had mentioned uh, the Belay Brothers, Dracula earlier, and of course their tenets of drag being uh, glamour, horror, uh, filth, right? Um, so what, what they mean is what I often refer to on our podcast is like put a little stank on it, kind of the way that Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original does, the way Tony yeah. has done that. Because if you look at Halloween by John Carpenter versus Texas Chainsaw Massacre by Toby Hooper, like it's a very clean palette. Not a drop of blood is ever shed in Halloween, and yet you have all this graphicness where you can walk into that Texas heat. You can feel it. You can smell the room that they're in, in that house of the family. And that, that's, that is kind of the thing with, with uh, Clive Barker's work and Hellraiser. It has that kind of feel where you can, you can smell the blood yeah. and you can smell the dankness of these, these uh, torture chambers that they're in or the dirt or whatever. He's so descriptive. Yeah, and I'm paraphrasing this from one of my favorite horror authors, which is, of course, Stephen King. 
where in um, Stephen King on writing, he said his object is to terrify the reader. If he can't terrify the reader, then his objective is to horrify the reader. If he can't do that, then he goes for the gross out. Yeah. Now, that's a paraphrase. It's not the exact quote. Don't come for me, but it gets the, it gets the right idea behind it. And sometimes you need that. Sometimes you need that visceral reading of, of a project to appreciate the movie or the adaptation more. You know, going back to college for me, one of the things one of my teachers told me um, about arts is that it's, it's about intimacy and getting, drawing your audience in is about intimacy. And one of the most intimate ways to get to draw your audience in is by terrifying them. Right. In, in horror. Yeah, in horror. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why a lot of people do tend to gravitate towards horror because it can be very intimate for them. They get to know themselves and they get to know the story through that intimacy. But I don't know that horror would even exist the way it does right now if it wasn't for works of literature. Yep. I mean, if, if going back, uh, Stephen King and Clive Barker and... Um, Paul Souls, a lot of these guys will actually refer to um, H.P. Lovecraft as being the grandfather of modern horror writing. Or, and that, that's kind of the thing. You, um, you can see a lot of the influence of Lovecraft in a lot of modern things. Yeah. Um, even, even works that aren't H.P. Lovecraft, like Lovecraft Country, for example. Right. Um, and there Lovecraft, of course, was friends with the, uh, the, the, the gentleman who wrote Conan the Barbarian. Oh. <laughs> and there was a lot of... He was friends with Howard, was he? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and there was a lot of uh, cro- kind of crossover, a lot of Lovecraftian mythology in Conan the Barbarian. Yeah, my dad used to read the Marvel version of Conan the Barbarian. It was always surprised me how wet and greasy a yeah. lot of these monsters were that Conan would just very easily or not so easily defeat. Um, but yeah, I mean, like when, when we get into this, I mean, we're going way back even to Victorian times with Penny Dreadfuls. Yeah. You know, and even that has kind of come into pop culture now where there was a television show, I think it was on Showcase. Yep. And Penny, Dreadful. Penny Dreadful. And what a great little idea that was where you spend a penny, you get this dreadful story yep. that you can devour and, and, and just get so much joy from it in an era that was prim and proper and, you know, couldn't even show your ankle because you were a wanton woman if you did Indeed. that. Now, going on, going more on to books... One of the, like, we were talking earlier about how books get adapted into into film. Right. A lot of our favorite iconic films are based off of books. Right. Uh, one of my all time favorites, Jaws, is based off of the Peter ben- Benchley novel. Right. Of course. Now, one of the one of the big content one of the big uh, things of contention though with fan with film fans and adaptations is always the movie or the book is better than the movie. But to me, that's not always the case. I mean, I know there are cases for that, but I will sit here and I will say it's on blue in the face. The movie Jaws is a hundred times better than the book. Yeah, I, having read it, I would agree because I think they took out things that were not well, like they, they did make it a little bit better because in the book, the the Hopper character, yeah. he actually has a one night stand or affair with 
uh, the sheriff's wife. Right? Yes, with Brody's we, wife. Yeah. We, we don't need that in the movie per se because the movie takes a different tone where it's almost Moby Dick like. Yes. You know where you've got the the idea of Quint going against the shark and the shark almost making it personal before we knew. You know, I mean, obviously this was written before the science of sharks came out. I mean, we, we know that sharks are not quite the, yes, they are an apex predator, but they're not quite like Bruce. Bruce is like this rogue shark. Yeah. And the, the, one of the, there's one thing that was removed from the story that came from the book that would have made the movie make a lot more sense. And that's Mayor Vaughn. Right. In the book, Mayor Vaughn is in Hawk to the Mafia. They removed that from the movie, and Mayor Vaughn looks like a nutcase. Yeah. Just wanting to feed his, his citizen and his visitors up to the shark to, to make money on July 4th. Well, and, you know, and they had to actually rewrite the script because Bruce didn't work three quarters of the time. Yeah. Because they did have uh, sketches set out that show Bruce coming up with Hopper in his mouth and... There is, yeah, they had re, yeah, they had written it initially that Hopper would die, and then Matt he, Hooper. Matt Hooper, sorry, Hooper. We're getting would, confused. With sorry, Stranger, Stranger, Stranger things. things. Stranger Things versus Jaws coming to Netflix. <laughs> no, um, ha, uh, Hooper died in the book. He was supposed to die in the movie, but the shark wasn't working, and lo and behold, I think that was a better ending anyway. It actually was because, I mean, could you imagine Chief Brody trying to swim on his own with just the blanket left over from the orca trying to, to paddle on his own and having nobody to chat to? Right? And That'd be like doing a podcast by yourself. <laughs> don't remind me. Uh, but the other thing, though, is that the, the Alex Kittner scene was meant to be much different. And there's actually pictures you can find online where they had used the shark in that scene right. and you could see the shark coming up through the water with the boy in his mouth and man I am really glad that didn't make it into the movie because that would have actually been completely horrifying well, I know because I was like six years old when Jaws came out there is this sort of lore between like the 70s and I guess the 90s where the kids were in danger, yes, but kids never got killed. Right. Which is why in, I think it was 88 or 89, when the adaptation of Pet Cemetery. I mean, God bless Stephen King. Oh, here's a toddler. Bye! <laughs> he just threw that trope right out the window. Poor yeah. Gage. But, you know, that it's, it's horrifying to see something like that and then to see it in a movie. But that's not even the most horrifying part. The most horrifying part to us Gen Xers is Zelda. Oh my God, Zelda! I I remember watching Pet Cemetery. Probably I was a little younger than I should have been when I watched it. <laughs> and Zelda comes on the screen, and I I yelp and I run out of the room because yeah. it she's frightening. The makeup job they do on that actor, the the way she moves, the voice, it's all very terrifying. And really fits it fits Stephen King to a T. Yeah, because <laughs> Stephen King has a way of taking things that are and not going for the joke here, but he takes things things that are superfluous and normal. I mean, having a sick relative is superfluous and normal. It happens to a, to a lot of people all the time, but he takes that and turns it completely on its head and makes it terrifying. Yeah, he takes that fear because you and I both have had parents who have passed away from illness. Yeah. 
And it's that fear of what's, of, it's the waiting, it's the anticipation, it's the fear of what's coming next, but you're not expecting a child to leave you, especially one that's only, I think Miko Hughes was like two or three years old. Like, yeah, very old. Yeah, he was, he was, he was, and yeah. he goes on to fight Freddy Krueger later right? on. Oh man, Fred, uh, I love that movie, New, New Nightmare. Yeah. But going back to, going back to books to movies, right? So, Stephen King, or not Stephen King, sorry, Steven Spielberg, El Spielbergo, has, <laughs> um, has, ad- has adapted his fairest of shares of books to movies. And obviously Jaws, but another one that is my favorite, and another one where he's taken it, and he has made a better film, a better story with the film than the book, was Jurassic Park. Right. Now, I'm not saying that Jurassic Park is a bad book. It's not. It's absolutely brilliant. Michael Crichton killed it with that book. But the fact of the matter is, is it's a very different story. Um, Jurassic Park the movie is a sci-fi thriller, as where Jurassic Park the book is a straight-up, almost science fact horror. Because he goes through, he talks a lot about the science and how all of this is actually possible. And even in the Lost World, he goes further into the science by talking about the medical issues that these creatures would have right and he chucks a ton of horror in it like the there's a scene at the beginning of jurassic park the book where a bunch of comps nathus the small little green dinosaurs invade a hospital and eat an infant right like absolutely terrifying stuff but jurassic park the movie was a lot more kid-friendly um it was a lot more it was a lot more action adventure and it was much more thriller than horror. There's, there's some scary stuff in there. I remember again, watching Jurassic park for the first time on VHS when I got it and the goat leg hits the top of the car, <laughs> Lex screams and I shot right out of the house. I was 11 years old at the time and it scared the crap right out of me. But you know, it's really difficult because you have to take this, this novel, you have to turn it into basically a two hour movie. So when they're adapting it, they have to try and pick the best parts that aren't going to annoy fans that it's not there. Yeah. Or they have to sort of rearrange it in some ways. And sometimes that really kind of backfires. I'm specifically thinking about the Harry Potter series. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I hadn't read the books, but I'd seen a number of the movies. Now these movies were so well done that I, I wanted to go back and read the the books. I wanted to get the full story. Mm -hmm. So, I think it was it was the Half Blood Prince, best book in my opinion, worst movie. I would agree with that. Uh, Half Blood Prince to me felt like they cut a ton out of the book and stitched it into skits. Yeah, and that and it just it felt stitched together because there was a lot of meat from that book that needed to be in the movie to tell the story. Right. And they focused on the wrong things. Yeah. I think they focused too much on the love potion and the luck, like the luck potion was, of course, that was, that was, that was a big part of the story. Yeah. You know, and there was just like all this kind of, yeah, so what? I mean, let's face it out of all of the actors, I think Alan Rickman just embodied Severus Snape. Oh so my well, God! Yeah, to the point that even if I had not seen the movies prior to reading the novels, mm-hmm. I think I would have pictured him playing yeah. that part. Well, and just a little fun fact about about him: 
There I, are I, certain... Fun fact about, about uh, Alan Rickman. Right. Alan Rickman loved kids. So on the set of the Harry Potter films, he would often, during the breaks, he would go and he'd sit with the younger cast members, and he was always kind of joking around with them. He and his wife never had children. Yep. This is why I respect the late Alan Rickman so much, because his wife didn't want to have children. And so he recognized that it's her body, her choice. Yep. She's the one that has to gestate and give birth. And if she didn't want to do it, it, it that was it. They weren't going to do it. Mm -hmm. But he found other ways to interact and have that enjoyment of being a father figure. Well, this thing, if you listen to some of the kids who are now adults, by the way, from the Harry Potter series, they talk very fondly about Alan Rickman. They talk about how he mentored them, how he befriended them, and how he was just there for them. Yeah. Um, it was a I think it was Ivana Lynch. She was talking about a um, a time when she was at a at a, uh, a press dinner, right? And Alan Rickman was sat next to her, and they just had a great time. He left a note for her and everything. It was yeah, absolutely he, wonderful. He, he sounded to, wonderful. He went to see uh, Daniel Radcliffe when Daniel Radcliffe did Equus with all of his Hogwarts hanging out. <laughs> um. Just going on a little bit about Snape here. So Alan Rickman, believe it or not, was not the first choice for Snape. The actor who was the first choice, and I don't think it was a bad choice, but it would have just been a very different take on Snape, was Tim Roth. Okay. I can, I can see, see it. it. I can see it. But again, very different take. Very yeah. different take. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's really interesting, too, when the author themselves uh, will adapt... The, the book into a screenplay because that I think that's what made the original adaptation of Interview with the Vampire with Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise so good. Yep. Is the fact that Anne Rice says, No, I'm gonna pen this myself. I'm gonna make sure that it doesn't get butchered because that's one of Stephen King's biggest complaints is that some of the adaptations of his books are just complete garbage. Yeah. Well that, and that's the other thing, like going back to Clive Barker for a second. That's why he wrote the screenplay for Hellraiser, because he'd done other movies like Rawhead Rex, for example, which were not really good adaptations of his work. They were kind of garbage. Yeah, and Stephen King can write for the screen. He has written uh, uh, Sleepwalkers. Right. He wrote, um, <laughs> no, maybe that was an adaptation. He, so he can write great novels. He can write some bad ones. They're not all gems. Yep. He can write some good screenplays. But I'm not sure he can direct well. Oh, no. Maximum overdrive. Well, I mean, first and foremost, let's let's get the elephant out of the room with that one. He was That was during his, uh, and he's admitted to this, that was during his coke phase. And he was high on coke when he was directing that movie, which may explain why the movie is completely balls to the wall. But insane. it does have one of the best soundtracks because ACDC seems to fit the Stephen King world so well. I know, right? And... The movie, had the movie had a budget, had the movie had a different director, I think it would not have been the worst thing. Even now, it's not the worst thing ever. It's still an enjoyable film. It's one of those ones that are, are trash, but I really, really like it. <laughs> um, there's some really fun stuff. There's some fun overacting in it. Yeah, the the, the, uh, the lady from the diner? Yeardley Smith. Oh, Yardley my God, Yeardley Smith. Smith. As the bride, as the new bride. Yeardley Smith, of course, famous for playing Lisa Simpson. Yep. But it's, Curtis, are you dead? <laughs> <laughs> we 
the one scene that I, is... I, all, I actually, in that movie, I don't understand why Curtis married her. No, me neither. <laughs> um, one of the scenes that always stuck out to me uh, was the, the lady from the diner when she gets... She loses her, her absolute mind and runs outside the diner and starts yelling, We made you! And it's just such a ridiculous scene because she overacts the hell out of it. And it's just so much fun. I love but it. But you know what? It's it's actually, but it's a really good pivotal point too. Like, yes, she's. It, it kind of shows the fact that she's having this breakdown of of sorts, right? Because when you are in a situation like that, where all the machines come to life and hit you in the head with a coke can, whatever. Um, but when you're in those stressful situations, you don't always react rationally. You don't always no. react. Some some of your reactions can be over the top. So it's it's. It's it's fun. It's kitschy. It's a popcorn flick. If you're going to introduce somebody to horror, that's a good one to do. I would agree with that. It's not that frightening per se. You yep. know, like, people always sit there and you'll see the joke of it. It's like, oh, well, if we're going to introduce somebody to horror. What movie do you pick? And someone will say, Lords of Salem. It's like, no. Like, why would you pick Rob Zombie's most visceral movie? Just uh, put a double feature with House of a Thousand Corpses and call it a day. That person will never come back to you. Well, and there, there, there's the thing, whenever, because I'm a helpful human being, you see, whenever somebody asks in a horror group, what's a good good horror film to, to start my kid on? I always respond with Cannibal Holocaust. Well, yeah, because I mean, Jamie, Lee, Jamie Lee Curtis has always famously said, why are you showing your children horror movies? They're rated R for a reason. They're rated 18 plus. But I mean, society has changed. What kids can handle has changed. They have seen real life horrors right now. Yep. And some of the stuff is just very blase in comparison. Well, and, and that's the thing. Like I've watched, uh, I've watched horror films with my kids zipper and the way she reacts to or the way they react to horror films is different than how I would have reacted at their age because stuff that was, that scared me is nothing to them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Some of the stuff I look back on, and I wonder why I was ever scared of it. Well, there's that as well, right? I'm tr- uh, just going to talk about Rawhead Rex for a second. When I was a kid, I, I, I have to, I have to. When I was a kid, I thought Rawhead Rex was this frightening film, this scary film. And anytime the monster was on screen, I had to cover my eyes. I never saw what the monster actually looked like. And... If you're really versed in Nickelodeon pop culture, yes, this mirrors an episode of Doug, but whatever. <laughs> it wasn't until I was a te- uh, an older teenager where I actually wa- looked at the monster and went, oh my God, it's made of rubber. It looks so bad. But yeah, like that's the thing is you look back at the things that scared you as a kid sometimes, the movies, the books, anything like that, and sometimes it just doesn't have the same effect. You know, Nick, there's a lot of things I can forgive you for making me watch. I can forgive you for making me watch Rawhead Rex, whatever. I prefer a little more je ne sais quoi out of my horror, but I don't think I can ever forgive you for making me watch Tammy and the T-Rex. All I have to say to that is I also made you watch Spookies. Yeah, but you know what? I could see what they were trying to do with it. That was just like a a, a, a proof of concept in a way. I mean, yeah, okay. Tammy and the T-Rex was actually released and... Other than having Paul Walker and Denise Richards in it, I can't see much redemption in hey, it. Had the kid, it had the kid from Children of the Corn in it. Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, of course, right. Yeah. Anyway. Um, oh, my gosh. Okay, well, but we know what Tammy and the T-Rex was about. They, the, the director had access to an animatronic T-Rex, and he wanted to make a movie. 
yeah. they did. Okay, but like Roger Roger Corman had access to a whole movie set and gave us Little Shop of Horrors in like a, a weekend. Fair. You know, Jack Nicholson's very first role yeah. you know, is, is the sadistic or mesochistic uh, dental patient. Yeah. You know, you, you see Dick Miller, you know, the Futtermans are in there. Uh, Mrs. Futterman is actually playing Audrey in that, you know? Yep. And so like, and then you get this wonderful off-Broadway musical of Little Shop of Horrors. Speaking of adaptation, see that that always that always I have to do some mental gymnastics with that sometimes because like okay, so you've got this B movie that had Jack Nicholson in it and all these other mainstream wonderful actors, and it gets turned into an off-Broadway musical, and then that off-Broadway musical gets turned into a, a movie. Yeah, you know and. <laughs> And they had to change the ending for that because the uh, test audiences didn't like the fact that they went through all this and Audrey does not survive, that Audrey 2 gets her. Yeah, and Audrey 2, of course, him and his, uh, or Audrey 2 and his, uh, his, plant plot, his plant pods take over the world and eat everybody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, spoiler alert for the Broadway musical. Actually, you can find the original ending for the movie on YouTube very easily. Yeah, but actually, if you have like it on DVD or Blu-ray, they, that's part of the special features, so it's not yep. really that that hard to find. That's fair. That's and you fair. can actually watch the movie in its entirety like that. You can make that choice, which, you know, it's really great how far DVD and home video has come, but I still miss VHSs in a way. I still miss having to go to the video store on a Friday or Saturday and spend oodles and oodles of time just carefully picking out what movie you are going to watch and having this, these great graphics, like mini posters on the cardboard box, taking that out, putting it in the VCR, having the VCR chew it to shreds and go, oh crap, and then getting another one, uh, <laughs> cleaning the, your video head, but watching this movie with that grain to it, you know, without every detail, and then having to rewind it and take it back. It was almost like having this precious experience that was simply yours. And now with 4K, you can see all the mistakes that were hidden by celluloid. And, and it, go, it goes beyond that, though. Like if you look at Alien, um, they had written bios for the characters that show up on the computer screen. And no one had intended for any of that to be seen. Right. But now with the Blu-ray with high definition with 4K, you can zoom in and see exactly what they say. Um, Veronica Cartwright's character, if you zoom in, that is actually a trans character. That is in yeah. her bio. And nobody knew that until the last four or five years because the, just, the technology didn't exist to see that. Yeah. But I'm going to be very honest with you. I do not miss VHS. I do miss going to Blockbuster, going to uh, the, the local video store and picking out movies. And I would sometimes spend hours with that. But there is something about that, that experience that is far ahead of just sitting there and flicking through Netflix. But you know, I think that's what makes our podcast of Area 51 and a half kind of unique in the fact that we're coming at it from two different generations. Yep. I'm getting old, man. I'm, I'm Gen X. Now, I'm, of course, I'm not a dinosaur, but I'm over 50. I mean, I'm sorry, getting? You're, you're a millennial, you know, and as I was saying earlier, this is the wonderful thing about being Gen X is that you guys, the millennials, hate the baby boomers. The baby boomers hate the, the millennials. And there's this whole generation in between that hates you both. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be fair, sometimes we hate each other. 
yeah, or paid ourselves. It was just this really great experience, though, growing up in that time as a Gen Xer, because my experience is so vastly different from your experience. Nothing was at the ready. Like you had to hunt it down. You had to go to uh, like save money that you earned, line up outside of movie theaters, like huge lineups for the one screen that was playing the big movie of that moment. Yeah, I and that 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 goes to our, our different experiences. Like I did not grow up in a time where there was a where there really were single theater the, single screen theaters were a thing. I've grown up in the age of the Googleplex. Right. And it's it while there were some one theater one uh screen theaters around they, they're, they're far and few between. But see, that's why I'm having such a hard time with streaming, right? It's not that I, I, I hate streaming. It's not that I don't use streaming. But it's not the same experience of going to a physical place and, and spending some money and taking a date, especially to a horror movie. There's nothing better than taking a date to a horror movie if they're terrified because then they crawl all over you and all those walls are torn down. And, and let's talk about streaming again for just a second. One of the problems... <laughs> One of the problems is streaming's big strength. And I hate to say that, but sometimes there's just too much choice. There is. Right now, I think there is. And I hate to say that because um, I want the choice there. Like, I would love to have an app that has every single movie ever made, every single TV show ever made, every single song ever made that I can flick through and just find something to watch. But then it becomes kind of like going to a restaurant with a giant menu it's hard to choose and you're sitting there forever. You, we've sat there where I've just flicked through Netflix looking for a movie and we're sit there and we're bored and we don't know what we want to watch. I wish there was some way to just kind of dial it down and and go from there. That's kind of the interesting thing because Netflix was the first on the block. They weren't even doing streaming when they first came out. I mean, that was the idea. It was like, Hey, you don't have to go to the video store. You can just order it, and we'll mail it to you. And yeah, the, mail it back to us when you're done. Yeah, the mail away, uh, the mail away DVDs that would come to you all scratched up because no one gave a crap. Well, but, I, I didn't particularly order because that again was the advantage of going and picking it out, and they would open it up and check to make sure that everything was fine. I learned how to check my VHS just at the video store by just flicking the little tabs. Like, oh, okay, it's not chewed up. Fantastic. So. The, the, the video store in the small town I moved to when I came to Canada from Scotland, they made a big deal about not leaving your VHS in your car while the sun is out. Oh. To the point, yeah, I remember which movie it was. It was Ransom with Mel Gibson. Mistakes were made, I'm taking. Yeah, so they had it on display. And it was a sign that says, if you leave your video in your car, this is what's going to happen. And the cassette was completely melted completely oh. done but yeah like that's i'm glad we don't have to do that anymore <laughs> no but uh, but i do treasure that experience i treasure growing up in that era of saturday morning cartoons of kitty matinees at the movie theater of watching these old hammer horror films through horror hosts on the saturday afternoon super host from wuab in cleveland coming over here and and just like wow all these godzilla movies which oh my gosh you i love godzilla them. My, my favorite moment is Happy Godzilla when he's doing his little happy dance in whatever Godzilla movie that was. See, and, and that's that's kind of the difference in my experience as well, coming from Scotland, because we obviously the, the God, we had Godzilla movies. They would play on Saturday afternoons, but we didn't have those hosts lead the movies in. 
Yeah, so I, I kind of missed out on that. But heaven help you if the cable was out. Heaven help you if you still had an antenna that you had to move around to get a, a clear picture. I mean, thank God I'm, I'm a little bit older than the generation that had to send somebody up on the roof and have somebody leaning out the window. Yeah, just right there. It's clear now. <laughs> Leave it there. And we're kind of hanging over here and trying to just trying to get it the news. Never yeah. mind something fun to watch. All I can picture right now is that scene from Gremlins when they're swinging on the antenna. Yeah, well, that's 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 kind exactly of it. It, that's exactly it? what we're talking about. Uh, you know, so again, like movies have come to this way, but I think that that's kind of one of the dangers of streaming is that they're not putting as much budget into movies because, it's like, well, we can stream it, and you know, I, I was watch I watched uh, the live action Pinocchio, right? It's basically the cartoon from the forties, so no big change. It's not a bad movie. It's it's okay to watch, but the special effects, because of the budgetary constraints, and remember, this is directed by Robert Zemeckis, yep. starring Tom oh, Hanks. Oh, I didn't, I didn't realize yeah. it was okay. Yeah, and it's starring Tom Hanks, and you look at some of these special effects, because you know they didn't throw as much budget to it as they would have if it was going to theaters, and it's so inconsistent where you're just like, wow, that CGI is really... Taking me right out of this. Yeah. Well, and that's always been the thing with Zemeckis's all CGI movies. Um, I abhor the Polar Express because it just looks so uncanny valley. I just cannot watch but, it. But Polar Express was innovative because they were using, it was completely motion, motion cap, capture. Yeah. And I think it was the first movie that was completely motion capture. And then they put like all the animation over top of it. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that was innovative, so I can applaud that, whereas these innovations have come and gone now, and we're kind of saying, hey, why are you giving me crappy special effects now? And that really does seem to be the thing. CGI... Yeah, it's, a, it's a throwback. Yeah. I, we, we discussed the other day about the new CEO of Disney. What's his name? Bob, oh, Bob Chapek. Chip, uh, Bob Chapawek or something? Well, yeah. Um, Bob away of everything that's good about Disney. Well, that's the thing is I looked into his history and his, he comes from when, the, the days of when he was the head of Disney Home Video, which means he was the one that was behind that kind of Disney grindhouse of the, the constant animated sequels. Right. And I think I'm seeing that in his current work, what he's doing as CEO, because it does seem like those movies are just being ground out to make money. From, Never mind the quality. From a stockholder point of view, a shareholder point of view, he is doing wonderful things because they are making money and they're recouping their losses from the last couple of years. But from a fan point of view, he is just ruining Disney. Yeah. So, yeah, whatever there. I don't want to talk about Disney too much because we got to save something for other podcasts. Yep. But I just want to remind our listeners once again that if you would like to join Don, our number one alien, in being a fan of the show and becoming an official alien, please come see us at our table where we will gather your email and send you an official alien membership card that you can print off. And we also have some great swag to give away from our sponsors. And our sponsors once again are... Denny's Restaurant in St. Thomas, located at the Elgin Center, 417 Wellington Street, where you can get breakfast Monday to Friday for $7.99. Mention Area 51 and a half podcast to get 10% off your purchase. The Long Box, 
selling comics, collectibles, and unique snacks at 471 Talbot Street, St. Thomas. Just want to mention, I picked up one of their, it looks like a Pringles can. It comes from, uh, I think it comes from Korea. <laughs> the artwork on this is gorgeous. I Art. bought it just for the artwork. But this is what I mean by the unique snacks. It says barbecue flavor. I'm used to North American barbecue flavor. This was Korean barbecue flavor. So it was Ooh. like eating beef teriyaki in a chip. It was amazing. I'm going to have to try one of those. Yeah. Uh, Black Cone Barbershop and Shave Parlors. That's where I get my hair done. So if you like it, go there. Respecting the heritage of vintage barbering with two locations to serve you. 36 Talbot Street in Blenheim and 133 Ross Street in St. Thomas. Stay True Tattoo at 817 Talbot Street, St. Thomas. Friendly Custom Tattoo Shop. Check them out on Facebook and Instagram or call them at 519-631-3111 for bookings and inquiries. And buy Lockwood Books, 488 Talbot Street, St. Thomas. Come by, see Vanessa Fletch and Duck the Cat for your love of old books. I'm getting a little dry, Nick. This is one of the longest ones that we've had. Yeah, and it's live. I, I meant longest podcast, <laughs> yeah. by the way. I think, you know, when I go home, I'm going to have to take some strong painkillers for my back because, you know, I do have a bad back. Hey, listeners, I'm not perfect. I know I wish I was. And I think, Nick, I will rewatch some Paw Patrol on my painkillers. Oh, not just again. To make, if, just if to you, make you have a great night. If Folks you tear at London Comic Con, let me tell you what happened. Our faithful listeners already know this. I wrecked my back. I had to take painkillers. I could not get into our recording booth. One night, I was tired. I could barely walk. I took two of the painkillers. I threw on Netflix. I just flicked on Random Watch. It came up with Paw Patrol. I watched Paw Patrol, and I was so stoned out of my mind, I thought this was the greatest thing that had ever been invented, and I was texting Nick in Scottish to tell him about it. What you think is Scottish, by the way. But, yeah, I got a live text along on Paw Patrol these, for an entire night. These wee little pups, they're doing everything. They're going to save all the pumpkins. TV show. TV show. All right, I will do that. When I take my painkillers tonight, I will, I will report oh, back to you. Done. Because he's not on your side. He no one's on my side. No one is on my the elderly, side. Nick. All right, aliens. Um, if you want to get a hold of us on social media, you can find us on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at the Area 51H. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Area 51 and a half. And we want to remind you to come on down to the London Comic Con. Still, we're here till seven, I think, tonight, isn't it? Seven o'clock. So, yeah. And tomorrow, uh, till, five. till five. So he's still got lots of chance to come down to London Comic Con, meet us, meet the celebrities that are here. And please give uh, a patronage to our sponsors quickly again. That's Denny's Restaurant in St. Thomas, The Long Box, selling comics and collectibles, Black Home Barbershops and Shave Parlors, Stay True Tattoo, and Lockwood Books. That's all the time we have now, aliens. Join us again in two weeks for our next podcast of Area 51 and a Half. Oh,